to the Rudimental Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hartwell. It is still a COVID-19 storm out there. I wish it were not the case, but we're podcasting and we're having a good time. Um, second podcast in a row with somebody in Washington, so there's that. Uh, this one's in Tacoma, right? Tacoma? Tacoma? That's right. I have Dr. James Doyle here with me and a uh, fellow UNLV alumnus. Um, still feels weird for me to say that, but uh, yes, fellow UNLV-ite, UNLVian, I don't know. You, I don't know. Go Rebels? Is go Rebels. Go Rebs. We're going to go with. Go Rebels. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing this. How are you doing? Doing well. Yeah, doing well. And yeah, COVID-19 is indeed still a thing out there. Um, just trying to hang in there uh, like everyone else and um, trying to make the best of the, the all the downtime. Yeah, the downtime is either extremely unproductive or extremely productive. It seems to be on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, man, I'll have like three good days of where I'm yep. just like 12, 14 hours of good work and then a day where I just crash, like I can't do it anymore. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> and then all right, the I'll, cycle starts over. I'll just watch Succession on HBO or something like that. <laughs> Great show, Seriously. by the way. Um, okay, noted. The uh, yeah, we so these are most of the time. These are the best kinds of podcasts where um, I don't know the guests very well. I've actually only met you in person once, um, and that was at Pasic when Pasic in person was a thing, and. Um, I met you, uh, I believe you were just a blob of UNLV people. And, uh, yeah, and then, you know, I went and watched your presentation. Uh, it was me, Ryan Harrison, and a few other people. Um, yeah, so the, the these are typically the best conversations because it's a chance for me to get to know people, and it's also, uh, you know, people tend to... Um, you know, share some stuff that they're not, you know, maybe they haven't shared in a while or the details about their journey that um, could be inspiring to other people. So um, you, uh, we had a little conversation before this and uh, you're originally from St. Louis, right? That's right. Saint, yeah. I grew up in the Midwest in St. Louis, Missouri. And then, um, you know, kind of had the standard started playing drums as a kid. Um, we started band in fourth grade, I believe it was. Oh, nice head start. Um, yeah, I guess theoretically, and it was, it was a good thing. We had uh, pull-out lessons throughout the, the day. Um, but, you know, my grandfather played drums a bit. Um, he had a drum set, and so, you know, when I was a real little kid, I'd go over to his house and, and kind of play there um, on his old Slinger Link kit. Nice. And, yeah, I, long story on that kit that I, um, <laughs> I ended up – when I got went through my rock phase, I, I like, traded it for um, – like, I totally got ripped off. I traded it for this horrible, horrible kit, but I wanted like, you know, a bigger kick and deeper toms and anyways. So yeah, that's where I, how I got my, my start was with that. And, um, when I was senior in high school, I really wasn't certain that I wanted to study music in, in college. Um, so it was kind of going to be an experiment. I did my college auditions and, um, ended up deciding on going to a music ed program, um, that my high school band and orchestra director's son was going to go to as well. Um, so I went to University of Central Missouri. It was Central Missouri State University back then. And um, went there thinking, okay, if I don't like it, there are some other majors that that school does pretty well. I can kind of um, 
reboot my my college education, but you know, as, as it goes, I loved it and and did five years of a music ed and a music ed degree, and then uh, moved on to do a master's after that. And uh, yeah, I did five years for my MU um, degree as well. It was well worth it. I mean, I thought five years was a little lengthy. It, it's a little daunting at at first, but you're like, okay, I see the reason why this happened. But you know, was Central Missouri was it a relatively small program, relatively small school of music, or was it rather large? You know, it's kind of medium, I'd say. Okay. Um, it was it was they had a little bit of a a master's program. Um, in music ed, but uh, there was sort of one master student around there um, when I was there, off and on. Uh, she was pretty much wrapped up, I believe. But yeah, I mean, it was primarily an undergrad program, and it was primarily a music ed program. Um, but there were, you know, our studio had 12, 14 majors, something in there. Um, we had, you know, a couple of wind ensembles and a couple jazz bands and, and um, orchestra and all that. So it was a uh, it was a good fit for me at the time. It was, it was about the right size where I got to play in everything. Um, and, and, you know, I was honestly, I went into college really, to be honest, underprepared to be a professional musician. So I had a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think honestly, that sort of thing makes you a little more hungry. Um, and it has to like take hold of you, you know, in, in a way that it didn't before. Um, I find that, you know, growing up in Texas where there's a prominent extracurricular structure, um, there's a lot of people who get the bug early and then they kind of burn out when they go Mm -hmm. the collegiate route. Yeah, it seems that way. You know, I think about a lot of the, the folks that I went to high school with that were phenomenal players, went to like, you know, really high end conservatories and, and, uh, uh, undergrad programs, um, around the country and all of them are out of music now. And, yeah. um, it's, it's interesting that I'm the one who is still playing. Um, and they're all doing really cool stuff and, and probably taking all the, the skills that they had from their music degrees and, and applying them to other things. But yeah, I think that kind of late start has kept me motivated <laughs> still yeah. today, you know, me as well. I always feel like I'm, you know, I'm always looking for something to work on. Um, I've said this before, but I, I take a lot of inspiration from athletes, um, LeBron James, Tiger Woods, all those people that um, are at, at the the peak of performance, Michael Jordan, in in their craft because they, uh, and often when you see like these documentaries that they're involved in or like these interviews are always working on something, they always think they can get better at something, which is why I like percussion so much is because we have so many options to to learn something new. Like, you know, I've taken quarantine and this time to really get my Pandero skills up and with the help, you know, of Tim Sellers and all, all these people that, um, have shared the same mindset. So it, that's one of the reasons that the bug kind of bit me is like, I wasn't the best marimbist. I wasn't the best, um, hand drummer. I wasn't the best drum set player back then, but seeing all these people that, you know, were working and, and taking inspiration from everywhere. I was like, okay, I want to get good at that. I want to get good at that, and I want to get good at that, and it's going to be fun because I'm playing drums. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's never a – gosh, you can never be bored. <laughs> you know, there's – Exactly. And honestly, like that's how my practice routine is set up right now is I use um, I use kitchen timers sort of obsessively to keep track of my practice time. Oh, I like doing that. That That's something I picked up from Ryan Harrison. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man, and just it really sort of – 
allows me to focus and then turn off the focus to be distracted for my five minute break and then right back onto it. So I keep two kitchen timers. One's always set at 25 minutes and one's set at five. And I just keep um, starting and stopping those. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, but I'll, I'll play marimba for, you know, maybe two or three of those cycles. And then, you know, like Pandero is another instrument that I'm, I'm tr- same thing. I'm, I've been trying to get better at it off and on for years. It's tough. It is. It's a, it's a physically um, exhausting yes. instrument. I, I remember taking um, this class with Randy Gloss, and he mentioned when he was learning to play the instrument, was playing it just hours on end, he would put on um, a wrist brace, you know, <laughs> as if you had sprained your wrist, just so that it, yeah. it, it takes some of that pressure off so he could keep practicing. And That's so, smart. I'm going to try that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was a good tip. <laughs> uh, the uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's kind of like, seeing people like John Hatfield with the frame drum or incorporating it into like these hybrid setups that it's like, well, I can just build my own hybrid setup, you know, kind of thing. If I get it, you know, as efficient at these instruments as, as I can. Um, I mean, I, I think we talked about it a bit at pace. Aren't you mess with a Baron or what kind oh, yeah. of unconventional yeah, do. do you mess with? Yeah. I've, I've been playing off and on, um, in Irish bands. So like playing the Bauron is, is an instrument that I, I really love. A guy I did my master's degree with, he's, um, he's based in Alabama now, but he's like really gotten super serious about the Bauron. His name's Andy Crusby. And, um, you know, up, up until this year, um, because it, it was canceled, but he was teaching in Ireland, um, in the summer, like usually this time of year, I'm on this little Island off the, the West coast of Ireland. And, um, he's like super into it. And, um, he's written a bunch of books, on it and um teaches lessons and that sort of thing so anyways yeah i he's actually i started playing the instrument before i met him but he's sort of my inspiration now um, so yeah the baron's a fun one i've always loved it i took some lessons with um glenn velez when i lived in california a legend yeah i mean honestly i needed to take lessons from someone he was phenomenal um but i need to take lessons with someone below him you know what i mean but yeah, yeah he's, when, he's the peak yeah, yeah. So I took some classes in San Francisco with him, and then he came out to um, Santa Fe, and um, he was—I forget—he was playing with some um, cellist and narrator or something. And so I went down and um, and took a nice long lesson with them, and loved the instruments, um, playing bandier and you know Baron and Tars and uh, Rick a little bit. Um, but it's like everything—you put it down and you come back to it like a few months later. You're like, ugh, I gotta. It's just so much to keep up with at, at this point because, like, because right now I'm the foundation that I've laid throughout the uh, collegiate experience, which is a lot of snare drum, a lot of marimba, a lot of timpani, a lot of hand drums that are kind of like you know djembe, congas, cajon, um, and then you know my last semester at UNLV we started getting into darbuka and rick, and we started to get into um, some more intricate kind of home playing. Um, and I was like, Ooh, so like, then I got the bug of Darbuka and then COVID hit and I couldn't take the Darbuka back to Houston to where I was going to quarantine. I was like, gosh, dang it. And then, you know, I was like, and my friend was like, Hey, do you want to borrow my Pandero? And I was like, sure. Why not? And then I was like, ah, this won't be terrible. I've learned a little bit about it from Josh DeCaney who came down to McNeese when I was an undergrad and I picked it up and I was like, Ooh, yeah, this is tough. This mm-hmm. is this is gonna take a while. And <laughs> Tim Sellers put it in a way he was like, Yeah, I mean it took me like 
six months to get this motion, motion down. I was like, oh, that's it. Okay, great. Well, good thing I have nothing but time. So <laughs> uh, I, I saw one of Glenn Velez's students, Shane Shanahan, play mm-hmm. live mm-hmm. with John Hatfield, actually, um, who I'm hoping to get on this pod as well. But the, uh, yeah, he was, he, it was, that was, that was another spark that got uh, ignited just from watching somebody be so incredibly proficient at something that not a lot of people are proficient at. So that's one, one, another avenue, I guess, that percussion provides is these people that are so like niche, but then again, like they're just masters and masters of their craft. Yeah. Shane's a like brilliant musician and, um, yes. and a great collaborative musician and, um, I, I've been lucky enough to see him and um, be in a class with him before. And um, yeah, I totally love his playing. And was it the Silk Road Ensemble? I think he plays with a bit too, Yo-Yo yes. Ma's group. And, Yo-Yo um, Ma's group. I think he's a adjunct at Harvard. Um, I think I'm, I think that's right. I know he does like, um, I think he's on the rotation for um, artists in residence at Hart. In, um, Hart oh, for, maybe that was it. I mean, he might be at Harvard too. Who knows? I mean, yeah. The East Coast, it's so easy to get to all those different towns, you know, exactly. and city, cities. <laughs> you yeah. can fit a bunch of Massachusetts and Texas and Nevada. So. <laughs> you bet. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's just so many people like that, that um, when people, a lot of people, it seems like don't hear of them. And then when they do, they can't stop like trying to keep up with them or be inspired by them, which is you know, something that I definitely took away from somebody like Shane Shanahan, who was, I mean, from the very start of the clinic or the concert was, it, it was mesmerizing. It was, it took me to another place that percussion has never taken me to. I think mm-hmm. him and John were playing, John was playing this hybrid drum set Cajon thing with, with frame drum and all this kind of stuff. And he was playing frame drum and throat singing and stuff like that. And it's like, <laughs> not that throat singing, entices me but it definitely is inspiring and i was like man it's there's just so many cool people like that that kind of fly under the radar and then every once in a while you'll get a chance to see them and be mesmerized you know one of the folks you just had on your podcast that i was listening to just the other day is alex stopa and he's like one of the most um wonderful musicians that so many people don't know of because he's not in the business of um you know, he, he's not teaching full-time in higher ed and having to do the whole basic thing and trying to get tenure right. and all that. He's just, he's a working musician, but he's a phenomenal artist, you know? Yes. And there, yeah, there are just so many people like that, that, um, yeah, I think it's important, honestly, to, to remember that there are, yeah, there are the big names that everyone knows, um, but you can find equal inspiration from, you know, the other folks who just aren't as big of a, um, a public name. You know, I was just, um, part of the, the faculty for the um, Ted Akats percussion seminar. Oh, yes, that's right. And, yeah, and they had a lot of the uh, – Ted had quite a few of the um, – of his guests were, of course, orchestra players, but, he, you know, full-time symphony and, and met opera players. But he also had um, a couple studio guys. So they're, they're guys that you, you may not know their name, but you've heard them play on some of the greatest soundtracks ever, you know? And, um, but again, you don't know their name cause you don't see their name on the credits at the end. And, um, yeah. so it's just a reminder. There's so many people that can work in this field. Um, you know, it's not just the names, you know? And so uh, a lot of times, um, we often see the end product of 
a lot of people, I, I guess, like art, the inspirational figures in our field, like we see people like Steve Gadd, Dave Weckl, Vinny Caliuta, like especially in the drum set world or percussion wise, we see Robert Van Sice, we see Steve Schick, we see Lee Howard Stevens, and we see all these people have made an impact and we see the end result. And I think a lot of the times, we kind of lose sight. Like I have to change my own mindset. In fact, when I'm learning new instruments or something, it's like, okay, uh, I think I'm getting better, but I don't feel like it. But if I was look, you know, we, we watch ourselves every day in the practice room. So like, we're obviously not going to see the progress from when we started to when we, you know, uh, to where we are at the current point. And, um, you know, it's, I think part of the reason I started the podcast was to share the stories and journeys of people that are at a point that is inspirational for others. That, um, is something that I think could help and (laughs) kind of help realize the mindset of these people that got to where they are. And like somebody like Dean, you know, like, uh, uh, somebody like Dean is, a perfect example if you listen to that podcast. Um, yeah, D- speaking of Dean, I mean, he's someone who's managed to take all of the the skill sets that you develop as a musician and transfer it um, to so many different areas. So he transferred it to being a um, you know a, a running a successful program, being a successful soloist and composer, um, and then going to do uh, you know a a law degree, and then. He, I know in my time that I was there, he was um, the acting dean. Um, so he was still involved in, of course, teaching percussion. He wasn't the assistant dean at that time. He was the acting dean. And then he was also an attorney, and he was a substitute judge. And so you see someone who's able to take <laughs> all of those, um, all the skills and basically the, um, the like, what's required to be successful, you know, in, in, a, in a big way. And... And especially as percussionists, because we're like so organized, you know, like we, I guess by default, um, just like we got to get to the gig early and we got to set up and we got to make sure the setup is consistent every time. We got to be there an hour before everybody else most of the time just to make sure everything's all tuned up. And, um, you know, like you've mentioned uh, before, like, uh, like a violinist or a clarinetist or something like that some some player like that could uh they play their instrument i I believe this is the way that you worded it where like um you they play their instrument and that's what they have to do and like we show up and there's (laughs) there's like a different drum that we're not used to or there's a different instrument we're not used to sometimes we play an instrument that's not adjustable in height and you're just like all right i'm guess i'm guessing i'm gonna play up to my neck today Well, that's for me, I'm short, so maybe not for you. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's just, it's somebody, you know, people like that and in our community that a lot of, a lot of percussions run college perform colleges of performing arts because of our administrative skills and our organizational skills. I'm sure you've, you know, seen that in, you know, while you've been in the collegiate, um, education in the higher education world, um, and a lot of times percussion professors and directors of percussion are uh, the most organized. That's not, that's not the case all the time, but it's definitely a good portion of the time, you know? Yeah, I think that 
combination of organization and then also, um, so I, I guess you could use the word tenacity. You know, the the different. Um, oh yeah. The the different aspects of um, of your life that you have to call upon in order to be successful as, as a percussionist, um, you know, transfers so well to the like you said to administration and organization. Um, to doing logistics or operations for, you know, festivals and things like that. Um, for, I, I know, um, you know, I spent some time in one of the Air Force bands and I was put into the position of booking tours is one of my jobs, um, aside from playing percussion, uh, was one of the tour managers. And, um, you know, I, I honestly don't consider myself to excel in the organizational area, but so many people that I know that did during my time in the Air Force came from a percussion background. And, um, yeah. yeah, I think that that's um, most definitely something that we're good at. When did you decide the military route? Yeah, so I finished my bachelor's, and or as I was finishing it, I, I knew that I wasn't ready to teach public school, or I didn't think I wanted to teach public uh, public school um, as a band director or orchestra director or something along those lines. And so, um, you know, I made the plans to take graduate auditions and I, I was trying to figure out, well, what is that going to mean? Because as you know, um, a, a master's program, you know, the advice I got from from my friends who graduated ahead of me and went off to do a master's, they're like, man, it's so short. Like, it's only two years. Um, man. May- <laughs> so, yeah, it, it you, when you're in the middle of it, you're like, gosh, this is so exhausting. But then the next thing you know, it's over. So, um, yeah, they were like, have a plan. And one of the plans that I had um, was, okay, I, I'm going to want to win a job, but I don't really, I don't necessarily have the, the orchestra background. Um, and living that life of just like trying to, to spend. Trying to win a job. Yeah, through the orchestral repertoire with all the the excerpts and and um, that sort of thing I just I had an interest in that and I, I studied that stuff and I practiced it and I did take you know auditions with that repertoire but I was thinking what kind of job would I um, actually be um, qualified for and you know I, I come from a family that um, everyone served in the military and I thought you know a military band would be a good thing so I took a couple of DC band auditions but there were only two in my during um, my time during my master's degree there were only two openings and, um, I, you know, not winning either of those jobs. I'm like, okay, what's next? And so, uh, there was a air force band in, um, in California, the U S air force band of the golden West. They had a percussion opening. They actually had two spots for that audition. Um, so that was at the same time I'm prepping my, um, master's recital. I'm prepping my audition for that. Um, and man, you're buried. At this yeah, point. I was pretty buried. And I thought, um, you know, you know, I really didn't have a backup plan other than, you know, I, I wanted like a, a seat in the Baton Rouge Symphony, but that wasn't a, a you know, full-time gig or anything. So I, I could keep freelancing in the South Louisiana area, um, but that that wasn't, you know, necessarily going to be sustainable for, for me and my mindset. So, um, yeah, I took... You'll be all over the I-10. Yeah, a <laughs> lot of I-10, yeah. And, um, yeah. and I, you know, I love South Louisiana. It was, it was a great time in my life, but I think... Um, me as well. Yeah, I mean Louisiana is such a, a, a cool. It's it's like a, it's like a different country within the, the United States. I think it, it has. Oh yeah, I've, I put it that way before as well. Just the cultural change. So um, much culture. Yeah, such great. Yeah, the the Cajun culture that I mentioned before that like 
yeah, Lake Charles is only 30 minutes across the Texas border, but it was such like uh, just an incredible difference in how life was lived and, you know, just the culture altogether. So. Oh man. Yeah. It was cool. And, um, yeah, I, I, like I said, I was thinking, okay, that I could stay down here and try to do that for a, a bit until I win a job. But then there's that other piece that percussionists have. It's like, you know, I didn't own everything, <laughs> you know, I didn't own, you know, timpani and, um, you know, all the, all the keyboard instruments that I would need other than just the ones that I was using for gigging. So, um, yeah, I, I got that job and that was, I think I graduated on a Saturday and like four days later I was at boot camp. Um, and wow. yeah, and then I finished boot camp and you go right out to the band. So I lived out there and, and did that gig for, um, it's like just under six years, I think is about, well, five and a half, I think about, uh, where it was. And I broke my second. How long was boot camp? Um, boot camp at the time, I think it's a little longer now. It was like six and a half weeks, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it sucked. Um, but it honestly, <laughs> like looking back on it, I think it, whenever people freak out about boot camp, and this was Air Force boot camp, which is, um, you know, they're not all created equal. But when I talk to people who are interested in military band careers, um, and they're like, yeah, I just don't want to do basic training. I'm like, you know, it's just not that it sucks, but it's finite, you know, <laughs> like at the end of your, yeah, yeah. at the end, you know, it, by the time you, you are, you know, five weeks into it, you almost like you develop Stockholm syndrome or something where you're like, this isn't so bad. You know, I don't have to think, I just have to follow instructions, you know? And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it turned out it, Kind of like drum corps. <laughs> yeah, I've heard people people make that analogy for sure. I, I never marched drum corps, but I've definitely have heard people make that analogy. It's nice. You just show up and um, or you wake up and you go through the motions and um, you do what you're told and keep your head down and, and do the best you can. And then at the end, you're done. So, yeah. I mean, uh, at, at that point, was it just, was it still like the four-year contract thing where it's, you know, if you want to stay on, yeah, here's another four years. Exactly. Kind of yeah, thing. exactly. And so um, I had re-enlisted. So I finished my first four. I re-enlisted, um, and I was in the middle of my second contract. And at the time, um, my wife had just finished her doctorate and was um, thinking that she wanted to do make a change and start looking for college gigs. So um, she found well, – she, you know, interviewed at a couple places, and um, we were sort of – particular about where um, we wanted to live at that point because we had been living in northern california and really liked it like the sort of the interface i'm sure it was gorgeous yeah, yeah. it was pretty there's a lot to do um and so we kind of made this thought okay let's try to stay on one of the coasts and she's a new englander so um that was a possibility um if we could find work up that way um or um as a kid growing up in the midwest like Colorado was so fascinating to me. So uh, she interviewed for a couple jobs in Colorado and got the one at App State, and they had a, a part-time percussion job. So um, I was able to break my second enlistment, but in return, I had to pay back um, a bunch of time to the Air National Guard Band um, program. And so I did that um, for about five and a half, six years with the, um, the, the name of the band has changed. I believe it's the Air National Guard Band of the Southwest, and it's based in Fort Worth. So yeah, I did that for um, quite a few years, and um, I did that while teaching at Adams State part-time, and then I got full-time at Adams State. Um, so I was finishing up my time in the Guard, was full-time 
um, at Adam State. And then um, I had a, a year off before I started my doctorate. I took a leave from Adam State, started my doctorate, came back to Adam State to finish while I finished my doctorate. And, um, wow. Yeah, it was. <laughs> you're, you're braver than I am because uh, that's, that's quite the undertaking, it feels like, um, especially, you know, being, I guess, the, the, the military thing uh, as a whole is um, is something that I have thought about, but the idea of of that whole audition process and everything, and people who get those jobs, it, it seems like it's a great way to kind of get life started, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, and something that, you know, you always see, like, they're, you know, they got the table set up at PASIC, you know, they, they got the, you know, everything, and you're like, man... I guess I could, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, but it's really cool to hear about those experiences. One of my mentors at McNeese was longtime Air Force Band, and um, and you see people who are atop the percussion world now, like Jeff Prosperi and mm. Hellcats and stuff like that, or in the military career route. And, uh, and it's always an option. I mean, uh, I know those jobs are not in the plethora of, to pick from, but um, I just feel like that's a really good way to get things going if that makes sense oh absolutely and you know for me i my position was for a concert band was my primary going to be my primary gig and then everyone does ceremonial band um and then i gosh i guess i had to play for my audition um like the last part of my audition was you know playing uh, with a combo but I wasn't being hired as the big band drummer. I wasn't being hired as a rock band drummer. Um, I had to kind of focus on that. And so I expected my life was going to be just, you know, kind of being the band nerd guy, you know, playing all the band rep. And yep. like my first gig with the band, I had to sight read some stuff because they had already been on tour. They were like on their last day of the tour. And um, they, I think someone that had been playing percussion couldn't play that last gig. Like one of the percussionists was either, I think, going to another band or off to like um, Leadership Academy or something. So anyways, I came in and read the gig, but in the middle of the show, um, there was this breakout where the um, the percussion section came out front with an Amadinda, so like the Amadinda xylophone from Uganda, and they were like, yeah, just just jam with us, like, you know, grab a djembe and come play with us on the gig. And I was like, what? Like, first of all, I don't know what an Amadinda <laughs> is and what the traditional music of Uganda is. And, I don't even know how to spell that. <laughs> right? And that's where I was. And it just turned out that two of the guys in the band had experience playing uh, Amadenda. Like one guy had been in, like, in a trio that performed with like the Buffalo Philharmonic on Amadenda. And I'm like, I didn't know these, this, wow. was, this was the thing. So anyways, immediately I figured out that the job was, um, it could be a lot more of what you want it to be. And so... Um, yeah, I was able to do some cool stuff. You know, we put together a percussion trio. Um, so when the big band was on the road, um, that meant the concert band couldn't be on the road. So that meant there were a lot of percussionists sitting around while the big band drummer was out playing. So we put together a group, um, and then we would tour at the same time the big band was on the road with our percussion trio. And then, um, a lot of the guys in the band at that time, and, and I guess that would have been, well, I don't remember what year, it doesn't matter, but it's post 9-11, um, a lot of those guys had been playing um, salsa band gigs in San Francisco. Nice. Yeah, and so we decided to put together um, a salsa band, but I had no experience in that. So, you know, the nice thing, the military, you know, would give you money for lessons. So, 
you know, I studied congas and, um, you know, all the guys, we all took lessons and just dug in and, you know, had a great time playing with that band. Um, yeah. So it wasn't just a concert band. It turned out, you know, I had salsa band thing and the percussion ensemble thing. And then, you know, you'd occasionally, um, get pulled in to play drum set and like a combo or something for a, a special event or whatever. Um, and then the, you gotta love those. You gotta love those situations where you're kind of thrown in to like kind of forced to learn new stuff. Because then it seems like all that stuff you were putting off is now you're like, okay, now now I gotta really you know dive into this. Yeah, and, and at the end of the day, you know, you, if you grow up playing in bands and you go through colleges and you play in good college bands, you know, you can play the rep and you have the chops to play the rep that's there. Um, yeah. And then what are you gonna do with the rest of your day? So. Um, you know, like one of the, the guys that I worked with at the time was take, uh, taking tabla lessons. Um, another guy was like really digging into his timpani playing and studying with David Herbert, who was uh, still playing timpani with San Francisco at the time. Um, yeah, yeah, just everybody kind of went in their own, kind of their own little niche direction. And um, it was totally, uh, totally a great use of, like, like you said, it was a great way to kind of kickstart your career and have a paycheck and, you know, benefits and all that. So it was cool. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely an option for a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting how, uh, I didn't know that you weren't at UNLV full time. You had like overlapped everything with that, but starting out in a, in a higher education job, um, I bet, I bet the fact that it was part time at first helps you ease into that life as well. Yeah, it did. And, you know, I was lucky to have some really good colleagues at Adams State. And, um, yeah, some great people that are that are still there. Um, and they were super supportive of, um, you know, as I mentioned, I was traveling a lot throughout my whole time working there. Um, that They were real supportive about me doing that. And there's some good mentoring that happens at that school. Um, yeah, I had, I had some really, really good people to, to learn from. And then, you know, my wife was full-time. Um, and she was, you know, went through the, the tenure track and got tenure right away. And, um, so I was able to see how that's done, um, very first, firsthand right. and, um, have had a lot of support to do that. So when, um, yeah, when I finished my time at UNLV, then I was tenure track and got tenure and promoted, you know, up to actually, I just was promoted to full professor, um, when I left the job, which I just did. So, um, yeah, yeah and we can talk about that in a well, little bit, but I think, you know, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just asking if you if you could uh, tell people where it's located. Yeah. So Adams State University, it's very, um, it's a very geographically isolated town of Alamosa. So it's in South Central Colorado, and it's in the San Luis Valley. It's this beautiful alpine desert valley that sits um, in the shadows. I guess you could say of uh, the um, Sangre de Cristo mountain range. On uh, the east and on the west is this uh, San Juan mountain range, and so um, you're mm. you're actually closer to like Santa Fe and, and Albuquerque, New Mexico, than you are to Denver. Um, my house, like, because you you mentioned like when you tell people to fly in, they have to drive then to. So it it was like you fly into. I think Tim mentioned he was like, I gotta fly into Albuquerque. Yeah, he flew and then yeah, drive. he flew into Albuquerque and then drove up. Um, it's about three and a half four hours from like, you know, a a major airport, Colorado Springs is a little closer. And there is a, there, there's an airport in Alamosa 
Um, and I think it's a, it has six passengers is the plane that flies into there. Um, sometimes you, <laughs> you get in the plane. I remember the first time I was like, well, we can't take off because there's only one pilot up there. And then we took off. I'm like, oh, I guess we have one pilot on this flight. Wow. Putting my life into this pilot. Yeah. Hands. And like I learned that, um, well, you know, the older you get, the more um, the, the people that are around you are younger than you. But so many times I would get on a, a flight and like the pilot looked like he was like fresh out of high school and um, couldn't, couldn't tie his tie, you know, like the tie was a mess. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And so there's so many times, yeah, I learned that, okay, if this, this, if this pilot, well, I mean, none of them crashed. So they were, I, I was making very unfair judgments, but the, uh, I always looked at their tie and if their tie looked good, I felt a little more relaxed. And if their tie looked like a mess, I'm like, all right, this might be my, it's all in the, tie. yeah, that was my, uh, <laughs> that was my, uh, measuring i guess of their their qualifications it's a fair it's a fair assessment (laughs) yeah so yeah that was uh alamosa and it's um it's like i said very rural very um i mean the town itself is like ten thousand people the but the whole valley which is about the size of connecticut um is like thirty five thousand people i think i know it's under 40 so yeah it's it's very um but again it's beautiful beautiful setting yeah i loved it Colorado's beautiful. I've been to Colorado Springs and I've spent some time in Denver. Okay. But um, the uh, Colorado Springs, that whole area was beautiful. The Garden of the Gods. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, forget the. Well, there's Pikes Peak mm-hmm. and then I think Seven Falls. Seven Falls, Falls yeah. Yep. Cheyenne, they like yeah. the Cheyenne Mountain yeah. Zoo and yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was incredible. It, I'd never seen anything like that. Like the, the mountains that surround. Vegas, the Vegas Valley, or they just, you know, they're desert mountains. They have that on their own distinct kind of look. But these were like legit, just when you think of mountains, you're like, okay, these are mountains. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and Alamosa sits at 7,500 feet. So the elevation, you're already up high. And then, um, right. Then the, the peaks around you are over 14. Um, and I, you know, I just moved to Tacoma and, that my house now is like I, I'm looking out the window here. Not that anyone can see that on the podcast, but I can see the I can see Puget Sound, so I'm pretty close to sea level here. I'm a little above it, but um, then to the southeast of me is uh, Mount Rainier, so that's like fourteen four, I think. Um, it, wow. So yeah, it's it's a completely different mountain um, in that you actually see all fourteen thousand feet of of that elevation gain. So Incredible. yeah, man, like uh, Alamosa was a, a, a cool place for me. Uh, for sure. You've lived in some beautiful places, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, I think it's sort of a, a prerequisite for me. Like, I never really have looked for opportunities um, after my master's degree someplace um, that wasn't a, a place that I would necessarily want to live. Um, and, and you don't yeah. ever really know that until you get there. And it's honestly not fair because, you know, Alamosa for a lot of people and living in, in that particular region, for a lot of people, it's really tough. Um, you know, cause you are isolated. It, it's, um, you know, the, the whole foods, um, that some people like to, to, to use as sort of their gauge. It's like the nearest whole foods is in Colorado Springs or Santa Fe. So you're looking at three hours to, you know, a gourmet, um, grocery, which that didn't really matter so much to me, but, um, yeah, like for some, some people it's really tough, but I really, I enjoyed sort of the solitude of, of that place for sure. Yeah, I was about to say it sounds very quiet and very uh, the opportunities there for just some 
almost like remote. Like if you wanted to turn your phone off, <laughs> and you could just enjoy the quiet and the remote, I guess, um, qualities of that place. It's like you, I would often see you take pictures of what looked like like the outdoor view of your practice room, and I was like, that just looks awesome. It just looked like just desert yeah not well it's it desert? desert yeah I mean, it's like all sagebrush yeah, yeah for sure that it, it's yeah. a weird spot because it's like in the like um sh- like the precipitation shadow or whatever the san juan so um just to the west of there is wolf creek uh, pass which gets the most snow in colorado but then we um in in the san luis valley we would get like not very much snow and like 300 plus days of sunshine so it was just, it was just mm-hmm. always nice um, yeah. And that yeah. was, you know, property was cheap there too. So my house was like on 30 acres of, of scrub brush, you know, of rabbit. Incredible. Yeah. So I had nice, nice views from the house. Um, yeah. And you know, when I was doing my doctorate, so I left, I, I took a leave and then I moved to Vegas, you know, to do my residency. And then it was just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it was day and night, obviously going from Las Vegas, which is one of the most, uh, you know, it's sensory overload to like the super chill. Absolutely. Like, you know, I would, I remember, I would drive back from the airport. I would usually fly in and out of Denver. I'd get back to Alamosa usually pretty late. And, you know, there's like six stoplights I had to go through to get home and they're all green, you know, and there was just no one, no one on the road and everything's closed. And, um, it was actually, it was so like relaxing to come back. And then, you know, on the flip side, I was always stoked to go to Vegas and and have, you know, everything that, you know, that's there. So, yeah. What was the schedule like? Were you there the entire semester? Then you would go, go back or? So, you know, yeah, when I took my leave, I was there, you know, I had to do the year residency. um, But then because Gary Cook was teaching all the doctoral courses, um, I was able to just come out when Gary came out. Um, And that worked out real nice um, that I was able to come out it would be usually once or twice a month and um there was a semester is when tim jones had um his i believe is when he had his twins i ended up um teaching Mm -hmm. some extra lessons of his so i think i came out quite a bit more um so yeah i'd come out and you know gary would like he would teach it was like drinking from a a fire hose in a good way but it's just like all this information's He's thorough. Oh man, is he? And it just he would go at it like Thursday night. You know, Friday we'd have Grown's Groove. We'd all go out to eat, and then we'd come back, and then it was cook until late, and then Saturday it was cook, and then uh, Gary yeah. and I would would catch our flights and um, head back. In some cases, he was head back to Colorado as well. And um, yeah, it, that was a, a great time. Um, and then I would come out, you know, on my spring break or whatever um, at Am State to. I usually tried to put like a recital or something around that time so I could come and and be in Vegas for a week um, to sort of get acclimated to the, to the instruments there. So yeah, it was, um, it was a good time. Yeah. That, I mean, I, I, like I said, I had no idea that that was a layout for you, but that sounds like a very, sounds like something that actually that I would be interested in if I was in some, somebody like in your position. So it's kind of like, because you, cause you mentioned that you the doctorate was going to be able to get you the next level, mm-hmm. right? And to me, um, that's kind of why I see it as I'll do it when it's kind of like a necessity kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just, you know, there's a lot of people getting them right now, and 
that's fine. That's great. But it's also a thing of like, I think I want to try the professional world out a little bit and see what that's like before I go back. And, but if I could do it at my own pace and, you know, kind of decide what I would want my research to be on, um, and, and something that I'm extremely passionate about, I think that's when I would enjoy it the most. Uh, what, what was your research based on? For, your- for my uh, paper, it was on, um, it turned out, uh, I focused on music for um, chamber percussion and silent or silenced film. So um, I basically, I, the backstory, I, I got hired to play this music festival and we were doing this Nigel Westlake piece. Everyone knows Nigel Westlake's on Follow Centric Lecture, like Marimba Quartet. Um, but he, he has this mm-hmm. very cool piece called The Invisible Men. And he wrote uh, a score for Synergy Percussion, like the Australian um, percussion group down there. Um, yeah. He wrote this piece for them using a, a silent film, like an old French silent film. And every single cue, like every single moment of folly, every, everything that happens on the film um, is represented in percussion. And, um, and it's, it's pretty much through composed, I would say, like, you know, one of the, the big parts of my paper was really trying to analyze the piece and it was difficult to analyze the piece because it was kind of, um, you know, he, he, he spent a ton of time, everything's to a click. And, um, it was just this really in, intense wow. piece, um, that, that's so short and so overwhelming. And so I came in to play that on this music festival and I hadn't, hadn't heard the piece, hadn't seen the piece, like no videos of it had existed yet on YouTube. So, um, I was like, you know, this would have been helpful to have like a performer's guide or something to this. So that I started my document kind of doing that. And then I looked at some other pieces that, that um, incorporate film, but no soundtrack and um, with mm-hmm. live uh, percussion, like quartet or um, quintet. In another case, a duo um, by Gene Kaczynski um, and then a, a large piece um, as well. Which Kaczynski piece? It's called The Mermaid and it's, it's pretty much... Um, based inspired by um what westlake did but it's just for a duo and it's, it's a shorter film but it's the same same sort of deal okay. it's, a, it's a short um french film silent film i love kishinsky's stuff yeah man. he's a great man great performer composer from what i hear awesome teacher yeah that guy's another total package so yeah that's that yeah. that piece is a, a fun a fun tune to do for sure the uh as far as as far as the doctoral experience for you um, the to learn from somebody like Cook and like Dean. Um, to me, I don't think there's anybody like Dean anywhere. I feel like he's kind of like one of a kind. He's at one point was one of the best marimbas in the entire world, um, composition wise and performance wise, and he just kind of changed the landscape. It. it I always ask this to people who went to UNLV. Did you ever feel um, like you were a part of like this special alumni network? Because I, I definitely tried to make sure that my that I was contributing. It seemed like there was all these successful people beforehand that came through, like Brian Mason, Lonnie, uh, Mark Eichenberger, and, you know, all these people, and uh, it, yourself. And it, it was so like, I don't know, I just, I always felt so, um, it was actually a motivating factor, to be honest with you, where I was like, uh, this is a, 
a huge network of alumni comparable to the likes of Kentucky, um, Oklahoma, all these places that have a huge um, network of people. And I, I, you know, I always thought of it that way when I was there. I, it, it always occurred to me for some reason. Yeah, man, that was my feeling. I, the environment there is, um, you know, I felt like it was it was a family. And it was a quirky, a very yeah. quirky family, but it was a family. And yes. <laughs> um, whenever someone would ask me to describe my experience um, with Dean Gronemeyer, it's like, you, know, you, you can't really describe it. You just have to experience the guy, you know. And, yes. um, and those Friday rep classes were just like, I just walked out of there every time, like entertained, because it's always a riot, you know. <laughs> but educated. That's a good way to put it. Educated. You know, I learned, I, you just learned so much and not just the, you know, how to perform, you know, a four stroke rough or whatever, but like, you know, these bigger picture things. And, um, you also walked out of there learning how to articulate your thoughts, because if you try to give feedback in rep class there and you, you you're all discombobulated with your speech, you're going to get ripped yeah. apart. Or if you start with, uh, like, you know, exactly. He's like, what? Right. <laughs> and it was always, you know, there's just always so much going on. So, you know, I felt like my experience was, was great. You know, I had, um, you know, Tim brought me in. Um, he took care of me. He, he helped me out so much. Um, you know, he, he's, he's been great. Dean was amazing. Um, Gary was amazing. You know, Kurt Rasmussen, I'm not sure if he's still around um, teaching. He's still okay, there. So I, I learned a lot from him. But then it was just like every week there were other percussion. Oh, James Bailey. So Jim Bailey from Australia spent. Oh, yeah. You were there. During yeah. He spent yeah. a bunch of time up there um, when I was there. And then I was fortunate enough to go down and spend more time with him in Australia on an, on a um, when they were doing the drum and percussion festival down there. Um, yeah. And, you know. It was, there's just constantly people coming in and, um, you know, there are, like you said, there are a lot of alumni and, and sort of like what we were talking about with, um, the percussionists that you don't know, there's so many UNLV folks or were associated with UNLV at one point or another that are all performing in Vegas and beyond and, yeah. uh, making a living playing percussion and, and drums and, uh, well, I have everyone from, you know, the drummer, the killers to, um, folks who have been playing the, the biggest shows on the strip to, um, you know, touring the country with, with various groups. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool place. You know, I, I would yeah, be yeah. waiting to chat with Tim and be listening to Bernie Dressel teaching a drum set lesson. And yeah, just like, man, this is, this is a really, really fun environment. So, yeah. It, yeah. It, it was something that motivated me and, you know, it was, it, it, it was definitely inspiring to a point, you know, before all this happened where I was like, man, I, I think I can do this for a living. And, you know, a lot of times in school, you're so focused on school, school, school. And then, you know, you should think about the professional side of things more, I think. But, you know, it's once you get to that point, you're like, man, I, I see all these people that have come before me and I'm around. I'm like, man, this is, you know, you, I could do this. And, you know, we're, I think we're all going through changes right now and you know unexpected changes or expected changes but uh what what made you decide to leave adam state man that's a that's a, a fun topic it because th- it's all it's all recent for me so um you right. know i've been there and this is counting the time i took off but you know it's basically 15 years of being associated with the school and um it was 
it was a great place for me. Um, you know, higher ed is changing. There's, um, like you, you mentioned, there's so many people in the pipeline looking to do doctorates right now, and the number of jobs are just decreasing. And the reason, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that, but there's another problem that everyone's experiencing, and that's uh, the enrollment cliff. So there are just there are fewer kids that are going to college, which means there are fewer students to teach. Um, and so I think, you know, I think it was, what, the 2008, the recession, and people just didn't have as many kids. And Americans in general just don't yeah. have as big of families. So, yeah, it's there's an enrollment cliff that universities are hitting. Um, in Colorado, it's going to be 2021 is when it's really supposed to hit. But then all of a sudden this, this coronavirus happens. And so, yeah, it's just everything um, – budgets were getting tighter and tighter, and higher ed was seeming less and less um, – like a, a sure thing gig, you know what I mean? Like my wife and I were both tenured, um, but it, we were living in it, like, as I've been mentioning here in a very rural area. And, um, you know, I grew up in a very blue collar family, like, you know, great, great parents. Um, but we didn't have a lot of money and I, I know the struggle, um, not, and gosh, I was actually very privileged um, when I, the, the more, you know, the older you get and the more people you meet, the more you realize your privileges and that sort of thing. But I just came out of, um, you know, I actually was elected to be our um, faculty trustee to the board of trustees. And so you start to sort of get a peek underneath the hood and start to think, man, I don't know that higher ed is, um, is all that stable. And um, it's, it, it definitely isn't. So I started becoming open to the idea of change. And so uh, Tracy, uh, she, my wife, she's a flute player. Um, she's also an administrator, great, had been a great administrator at Adam State. Um, she was our department chair uh, for a rotation, and then she was pulled into, well, she designed and ran our master's in music ed program, and then was pulled out to be an administrator wow. in some other areas. So she thought, well, you know, if there's a, a good job in a major metropolitan area, I might just apply. And so she applied for a job um, at University of Puget Sound to be their director of um, school music. So she got offered that job, and... Um, you know, with everything that that I just mentioned with the enrollment cliff and this, that, and the other, I was thinking, man, I, I think this would be a good time for me to, to before I get too much older, to maybe look at a, at a change, a career change. So um, I came up with her. Um, she just started like last week and um, is, is getting her footing here and I'm trying to get used to Tacoma. I was planning to, you know, freelance and, and you know, I'm going to teach a little bit still through Adam State. And I'm teaching a little bit at Puget Sound, but I was like, yeah, I'll piece together some work. Um, and then like COVID happened, but it actually is going to work yeah. out. I just actually, before I left Adam state, I was approved for a sabbatical to take a semester off to, to do research and that sort of thing. So uh, we sort of budgeted that I'm going to spend a year basically practicing, doing um, some compositions that are actually tying back into my, um, my doctoral work is writing some pieces with film um, solo works in Very this nice. case. Um, so films that are in the public domain that I'm going to, I'm composing, um, works to go with them so that uh, I have a, basically an entire um, solo repertoire of, of works that align with film. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of on a year sabbatical and I'm going to piece Very that nice. together. So that's, that's sort of what led me to, to leave. And um, I loved it there. I loved my students and, co and my uh, colleagues and um, that sort of thing. It left on really good terms, um, but you know, left on my terms, which I think has always been important to me as well. Very important. Yeah. yeah. The, is this part, are you contributing to the, what you mentioned and what you presented on at PASIC, which is 
the Composer Diversity Project, or is this your own thing, or is this... It, tell us a little bit about the Composer Diversity yeah, Project. That's, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So the, the Composer yeah. Diversity Project was sort of this organic um, research that my students and I started doing. Um, you know, just one, one day I was on social media and I was scrolling through and it was like about that time where everyone's posting what their concerts are going to be like, Oh, my percussion ensemble's mm-hmm. doing this or the winning ensemble's doing that. And, um, you know, one of the things about Am state that's, I found to be really wonderful. It's designated as a Hispanic serving institution. And so, um, a certain percentage of the student body, um, I identify as Latinx and, um, so it's a very diverse institution, um, comparatively speaking, to a lot of other schools in Colorado. So right. um, there's a lot of um, really cool training for equity work that happens there. And so, you know, I went through a couple equity institutes um, where you basically, you know, you you unpack your your belief system and you unpack um, how you were brought up, and you you know you're basically everything that, that our country is looking at right now with Black Lives Matter and um, so many other um, things that are that are taking place, you know, f- at the forefront of American culture right now. Um, these were things that w- we had been studying for a few years. And so, you know, I, I'm on social media that day and I'm scrolling through and I was like, man, every single piece that I'm looking at is a, a composition by, you know, a, a white male composer. So, yeah, once you think when when you said that, and I was in I was in the audience, I was like, "That's." You think about it. Most of the pieces I've ever played have been by white males, which is extremely. It was so weird to think about. I had never thought about it that way. Yeah, I mean, we have. You, you probably played some Keiko Abe, and so we have have that. Yeah. But you know, when you start looking at, it, you're like, okay, well, that's so. Why is that? And so the question of why. Um, and, you know, there are, you can talk about the systemic, um, you know, the, the way in which the system is set up. But I was just curious, like, could I put together, a, you know, a program that would have all the nuts and bolts that are important in higher ed? So it's going to be, you know, pedagogically sound. It's going to be, you know, it's going to cover these different musical styles and this, that and the other. Could my percussion ensemble put on an entire performance of works, in this case, by women identifying composers? Um, and so I'm like, what's out there? And I start searching around. And then um, in my literature and ped class, um, two of my um, female students, they started doing some of that research as part of that class as well. And so we started databasing percussion ensemble works that were specific to women identifying composers. Um, and not in an effort to tokenize or to say that... Um, that there's only one way to program, but to just try to understand the whys and then to basically create a resource for others um, if they're looking to diversify their programming. And so we went down that path. Um, and as a studio, we started investigating that. And, you know, there was never really an edict from my studio. I never told students like, well, you know, this is what you want to play in your junior recital. Let's look at this um, list of composers. Um, you know, maybe you should you, you should try to find a person of color. We didn't do that, but my students gradually right. kept becoming more and more aware of um, their body. Uh, yeah, it's the awareness factor that is more of, I guess. I mean, it was an awareness shock. Uh, it, it was more of a kind of a wake up call for myself, especially. Yeah, I mean, it, and that's good. And so then it you 
you start to notice it and then you start to think, okay, what, where can I contribute in, in this regard? So one way that I was able to contribute was I was able to write some grants and think, okay, if there are some underrepresented composers and, and or there is a need uh, for different voices and, and um, people of color and women identifying composers are, are very underrepresented in the percussion repertoire, um, what can I do about it? So I wrote some grants to commission um, some composers and uh, we started kind of going in that direction. So that was another piece of this project was um, the idea of writing, uh, having pieces written specifically for us and contributing um, to, the, um, to the canon and, and trying to get more music out there. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was, that was that piece of it. We started going in other directions as well. You know, another um, equity issue in percussion is like the school you're at. Do they have gear? You know what I mean? And I, I heard you and, and Dean talking about that on his podcast that when he got to UNLV, there was nothing. And, and as you mentioned, that place is like, it's phenomenally, I mean, there's so much gear, <laughs> you know, so many great instruments at UNLV. Yeah, there's extras for everything. There's it, there's a full uh, bateria for Brazilian music. There's full, you know, there's uh, uh, <laughs> four full sets of timpani. Um, there's, you know, it, it's, it's everything you need right there. And it's similar stories across America and American schools. Like unless the, unless the school is set up financially to, even with a professor's artist discount, like in Dean's case, he was a Yamaha artist for a long time. And Dean, uh, Tim is now with Majestic, but unless you, even with that kind of artist discount setup or that endorsement factor, it is often uh, still extremely expensive. I mean, if you, because you know, if you're going through the educational educational discount route, it's still, I mean, it's just, it's actually incredibly, incredibly expensive. And looking at budgets and looking at uh, uh, itemized. Um, budgets and stuff like that you're like man uh, i can't even imagine yeah it's brutal and you know and it, and then of course that's the case in, in the public school systems as well and um you know i was pretty lucky at adam state you know when i got there it was kind of like what dean described when he got the nlv there's just not a whole lot happening there's a part-time percussion guy um off it was a different person every semester every year because it was such a difficult place to get to that people would be tired of driving out there to teach um and so the instruments that were there weren't well maintained, um, and you know I, I immediately set to work of, of trying to raise money to do that. We um, went through a building renovation that I was able to write in a bunch of instruments, um, and then yeah, just through you know industry connections, was able to keep adding, adding to what we did, and then writing some grants for you know a bateria for a steel band, um, just you know make make connections in the community with donors and that sort of thing. Was able to build it, but not everyone has that, that luxury. So yeah, the, in the, the last piece that I was able to get through with the diversity project uh, that we were doing was, um, was looking and databasing repertoire that could be done, um, without needing, you know, we, we sort of use like the backpack percussion ensemble, like what can fit in a backpack mm -hmm. as a starting point. And then, um, what are other pieces that you don't need a massive, um, inventory of, and you know, you don't need two octaves of, of on glocken, and, um, you know, like <laughs> five, five octave marimbas to, to perform the works, 
tuned pipes that you have to make and go to Home Depot eight times. Yeah. Hey, Ryan Harrison and I did that at UNLV when we did uh, the so-called Laws of Nature. Had to tune pipes. Yeah, yeah. I I found them actually recently when I needed them. Yeah, Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah, he, Ryan and um, H.J. Merlino and uh, Kyle Bizantz, the four of us, did did that piece, so-called Laws of Nature, when I was there. Nice. Good group of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, but that's that's brilliant though. The the how can I fit what I need in a backpack percussion wise? That's almost like it's like man. Depending on the size of the backpack, if I have a tambourine, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of the space. <laughs> yeah. You oh, know? for sure. Yeah, I did a clinic with um, my students at our like state conference a couple years ago, and that's what we did was all backpack percussion pieces. So, um, yeah, awesome. you know everything from like you know music for pieces of wood to um, some more educational yeah. pieces to John Bergamo um, pieces that are, you know, a lot of frame drums and stuff. So yeah, it was a, yeah, it's a fun way to look at it. And certainly, you know, after having been in the air force and, you know, when we'd go on the road, it was a 53 foot trailer of gear that went on the road. Um, and then when we started our percussion trio, it was like two vehicles, like two vans worth of gear. And then we tried to get it down to where we could just like take a car, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Too much gear is, um, it's it, it's fun initially, but after your you know your seventh or eighth performance on the road, and you're the one setting it up and tearing it down, yeah, backpack percussion time. So, anyways, backpack, yeah, we're gonna go the backpack route. Yeah, yeah, man. Hey, you're working on Pandero. That's gonna save you from having to set up a drum set on some gigs. So, yeah, yeah. My buddy Tim was saying he's like, yeah, eventually you get to the point where you can play like James Brown grooves and. You know, you can play some funk stuff on here. I'm like, all right, well, it's going to be a lot, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you'll get there. You'll totally get there. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, in, uh, I think that um, it, it puts things into perspective. Obviously, I think there needs to be a lot of reform across all areas of percussion anyway. Not Maybe not complete reform, but I think we need to be a little bit more aware Um and that goes for all facets, marching, orchestral, uh, contemporary. Um, I think a lot of pieces are going to come out of this quarantine and in COVID-19 time. I, I feel like I've seen a lot of people already make YouTube videos of their new pieces and stuff like that, which is super cool. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what it looks like on the other side of things. You know, maybe we reform the way that we go about higher education and, you know, percussion degrees and, Maybe we go a different route as as opposed to like, you know, maybe we start incorporating lessons on electronic percussion and, 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 and stuff like that, which is something that definitely interest, interests me um, getting into it, you know, with my mallet station, mm. kind of all that rolling gear and stuff like that. So it's it's just an interesting time. It's almost like a reset um, for for percussion. It's it's given me an opportunity to do more media stuff to, to do more podcasts and stuff like that. But overall it's looking like it may look like a whole new ball game. After yeah, this. man, I think you're right. And I think what you're doing is smart. Um, digging into, to the electronic percussion stuff. If you have a mallet station, I mean, that's like probably this next year. I mean, I just don't see any way around it. I know like the, the national conversation right now is we have to get, classes going again but it's i mean it i just i don't see it happening personally i hope that i'm wrong i don't know 
Yeah. And, you know, the Mount Station, I know, you know, two of my students uh, at M State have them, you know, in their apartments now. And it was, you know, they were able to start working on some really cool things while, you know, the, the students who didn't have gear um, were kind of out of luck. You know, we were able to get some instruments loaned out before the school shut down. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's going to look different. And, um, you know, it's financially things are going to look way different and the number of jobs, you know, that's going to look different, but I, man, I'm a, I'm a strong believer that if you keep, you know, a kind of a growth mindset and you keep learning new skills and you keep being willing to try new stuff, like you can make, totally make it work. And I'll say this too, like when people ask, Hey, should I just go straight through my bachelor's master's and doctorate? You know, I, I, my question is always like, well, what's the end goal? Like, what are you after? Are you after, um, you know, a college teaching job? And if so, like you could probably get it, but you're going to have to probably have some other skills. So, you know, do you have marching, mm-hmm. a marching background? Do you have a composition background? Do you have, um, you know, something else besides just the percussion piece? Um, I'm always, you know, like yourself, like people that finish a degree and then are like, you know, I'm going to take some time to work. I'm always like, yeah, I think that's, that's the piece of advice I always give to my students and, and to my friends that, um, I think it's important is so that you do come with uh, some background and some skills and some, you know, something to bring to the table besides just what you experience as a student. Um, I think that those are some of the most invaluable things that you can then pass on as an educator. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, I feel like we can do our job from anywhere. It's what I'm believing. It's what I have to believe now. And, you know, some cities are better than others, but I think it all depends on your mindset and, uh, you know, if you if you can make an impact from from the small rural town in Colorado, then I can then somebody else can make an impact from wherever they are. You know what I'm saying? So it's uh, it's going to be a different world. But at the end of the day, I think it's all going to work out for the better. And I think we're going to look at some things differently and and look to forward progress in our craft and, you know, something that I think that we could work on more. It's just a little bit more inclusiveness and a little bit more um, modernization. Moderniza- modernization. There we go. Um, and uh, I, I think I think that's what I'm most excited about, besides the stuff that I'm working on. But it's, uh, yeah, it's gonna be it, it's gonna be an interesting world, an interesting percussion community. I think after it will. This. And you know, I I mentioned the the AdCats seminar I was just a part of for three weeks and. Uh, it was yes. it was virtual, it was virtual right? and so it was it was more inclusive um, in the sense that you know you didn't have to pay to get yourself there and like PASIC this year is going to be completely virtual and virtual, yeah. what that means I mean it does for the those of us who enjoy going for the hang you know just as much as is the the concerts and the, the clinics and whatnot people are going to be able to take in stuff you know and sort of ex- get an experience that they wouldn't have had otherwise so. You know, I'm I'm hopeful that they'll that the organization will um, put together something cool. I think they're trying. They're going to try to do something unique. Um, but I do think, yeah, this we can look at how um, you know something that I'm working on right now with a couple of my former students is um, we're putting together a media company with the idea that the phase back into live performance is probably going to be measured. You know, you're going to probably as we're able to get back to um, live performing we're going to be able to get back to, you know, maybe a, a hall that's only 25% full or 50% full. Um, and then gradually work back to full right. halls. 
And um, so how can we help? Like, how can you monetize um, and help the performers and the venues and the organizations that host the concerts? How can you help them still monetize a concert with 25% live audience and then maybe, you know, an unlimited amount or maybe even a more exclusive amount of people that are allowed to watch it um, from home? Um, and then as we gradually get to, um, you know, back to 100%, there's still that opportunity to also have, you know, live streams and um and that sort of thing so uh, that's an interesting idea like i've already seen one live stream where there was a pay gate and it was like seven bucks and it i was like yeah i'll pay seven bucks i want to see my friend play you know it was hoffman he was playing with uh uh scary pool party and i was like i mean yeah i mean this is actually a great idea they're on a stage they're doing a full show but i mean the only way to monetize that, and I think it was going to to charity anyway, mm-hmm. but it was it was an interesting thing that I really hadn't seen before. And before this time, I was like, "Oh yeah, seven bucks, and I get to watch a live stream and keep it." Too. Oh, nice! That's a nice a nice yeah. plus as well. Yeah, I mean, there were um, the, these musicians I played with a bit in Colorado, and you know, they were putting on shows and, and just doing the virtual tip jar thing, and they were honestly, I mean, they were playing less. Um, obviously, you know, you can't put on a live stream six nights a week and expect to make any money, but right. they're making a lot more per show, um, just through, and you know, their, their audience base is a little bit of an older audience that is, um, you know, it's Americana music. And so it's sort of a different, uh, a different clientele, but, uh, that, that has a bit more disposable income, but they were actually making more money per show off of their virtual, um, tip jars you know, through Venmo and, and, and PayPal and whatnot, than they were with the live show where the, the venue paid them. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, Interesting. you know, there's, we both know there's no replacing the in-person experience and gosh, I can't wait to get back on both sides of the, the stage, you know, from the audience or from the stage to, to doing it. But yeah. yeah, but how can we, how can we do something in the meantime that, um, that makes, the, the experience, um, and, and not just from a, a money standpoint, but, you know, it's getting your, your work out there. Um, I've actually enjoyed some of the concerts I've watched that you can like kind of you're in the chat over on the side of your screen, you know, like commenting yeah. on things like right when, yeah. um, you know, everything went in the quarantine, like, um, third coast did a concert, um, third coast percussion. And so I, w- I went on to watch it and, um, it was like, in the chat, it was like a, it was almost like PASIC. It was like a who's who, you know, you saw people in all walks of the percussion world. <laughs> they were over in the chat, just having yeah. conversations while watching, um, third coast, you know, and I, I, well, that was kind of like the Ted Atkins thing where I saw, it was like a picture of all like, uh, Daniel uh, Squires and, um, Skyers. Yeah. Squires? Yeah. LA yeah. based uh, percussionist. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She, I think she runs the orchestral percussion mm-hmm. talk group. Uh, you know, you got Ted, you got Tim, you got yourself, and you got all these people that are just like, it, it, it was just a cool gathering thing. And you got people offering master classes like Dave Weckl and, you know, people like that in the drum set world. And you got people offering Zoom calls where you're like, yeah, pay me five bucks and you can come sit in on the Zoom call, which is, it, people are going to be like, man, I should have been doing this sooner. <laughs> you know, I hadn't even heard of Zoom before this, but, you know, uh, yeah, you know, it, I don't really, want to uh, get to the point of charging for to listen to the podcast, but I mean, it could lead to some sponsorship, sponsorship opportunities or, you know, allowing another 
you know, overhead kind of foreseeing, you know, people foreseeing how the podcast operates and stuff like that. It's more of a passion project, but it makes me think, wish I was doing it more often when I got to grad school. I was doing it, you know, quite a bit in my undergrad, but when I got to grad school, I was like, all right, well, maybe I should like get to know some people first before I asked them to be on. But, um, yeah, I think people are starting to think of things very, very differently than they did before. Yeah, man. And with all the time that people have, like, I don't I'm consuming more podcasts, like totally consuming more. Yeah. And so, you know, you're putting a product out there and putting out conversations that, um, you know, the, I've started listening um, in the past couple of weeks in particular. And um, yeah, man, I've, I've enjoyed the guests you've had and the conversations you've had. And, and you, you're having the conversations that um, that are, are fun to listen to. And, um, you know, you mentioned Casey has his and there's, um, you know, since it's kind of a four, I think four people hosting it, um, it's it's cool because you get those different perspectives. In your case, it's fun because it's one on one, you know, and it, it's like it's just a different yeah. you're putting out a different um, product. that's cool. And you're back. Well, it's fun for me. That's good, man. It's and this has been fun to chat with you as well. So I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the time, man. It's uh, it's uh, not ideal to do it remotely, but it does work. Um, especially if the person has you know like a like a recording setup and everything. But uh, you know, technology is crazy. I'm just trying to you know take advantage of it and um, put out some great content and uh. Yeah, like I said, just thanks so much for being on. Hey, it's my pleasure. And, you know, thanks for the, the guests you're bringing on. Like, as I mentioned earlier, um, it, it was like a, a trip down memory lane on my run today listening to you talk to Dean. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. like... Talking to Dean is a concert. In yeah, itself. I'm going to shoot him a text when you and I finish here and um, tell him I... Well, I need to finish listening to the podcast. But, uh, yeah, just tell him that I enjoyed your, your conversation because, you know, he's, he's such a trip. And that's, if people listen to it, they'll get like this much of an understanding of that guy. (laughs) But, well, I mean, that much of what he was saying was, uh, oh yeah. Or PG. (laughs) So, and I I was, you know, I wasn't worried about that, but I was like, oh, you know, he, anything could come out of his mouth. So, (laughs) you know, but, uh. It was good. It was, I'm getting a lot of good feedback on it right now as we speak, actually. Uh, if you're listening to this, it's um, the day that Dean's podcast came out. So, yeah. But uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's That was one of my favorites, if not the favorite one that I've done. <laughs> Understandably. Yeah. It's, it's a... Yeah. C- congratulations on getting him because, you know, he's, a, he's such a busy guy. And, um, you know, even when he's not busy, he stays busy. And... Um, Exactly. He's always moving. He's always rocking. It's funny when he was doing it. He was, uh, he was in his rocking chair in his condo, and he was going back and forth like that. And he was like catching the mic, and he was still talking. So I, I don't know if that came through or not in the mic, but it, it was like an in and out thing. I was like, can you? I can't tell him to stop rocking back and forth because he's always got to be like moving. You know, like I said, he's my crazy uncle at this point. So it was like. Well, uh, it's like a Doppler right. effect. I'm just gonna set the mic right here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was a fun one. And Sherelle was sitting there the whole time and just you know hanging out. Does he still call his condo the uh, dump? Come on up to my dump. He does. He calls it. Come on up to my. I'm like, this is a very expensive. Yeah. Dump. Yeah. So, when you you yeah. um you know have a valet and uh um you go in and. It'll, a view of the yeah, street. and someone has to, you know, they they punch in the um, elevator, 
number for you so you can only get off at his floor. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a pretty crazy place. It's awesome. I was surprised they let me in during all the quarantine stuff, but um, yeah, they, they let me in, and uh, I've gotten to like almost know the valet guy there. I'm like, hey, what's up? <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're back again. But, yeah. But yeah, man, thanks so much. Thanks so much for being on. This was great. Hey, thanks. And I look forward to hearing your other podcasts. Keep it up, man. I will, man. Yeah, thanks. All right, that uh, that does it for this episode of the Rune World Podcast. Um, you can follow us on my social media, which is at Hartwell Drums. Uh, James has his social media, which is at James Doyle Percussion. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds right. At James W. Doyle Percussion. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. Um, I have it all through my website as well at uh, jameswdoyle.com. There it is. And then um, I will be hopefully, uh, you know, getting some more um, support here soon. I've gotten word, I've gotten a couple of emails, which is interesting. Um, so get that going. Uh, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, all major podcast streaming plat- platforms wherever you listen to podcasts um actually i wanted to point this out um in the description you'll see a support link through anchor where you can actually donate willingly to support the podcast if you want um you can subscribe to i think a monthly plan it's like 99 cents a month or something like that if you want to do that you can do that if you don't want to do that it's totally fine not trying to like make money off this thing but it would be nice <laughs> but uh the uh yeah, I appreciate uh, all the listeners. And if you have any requests on guests, send me a message on any social media and I'll provide a link to James's website and his social media in the description below. That's it for this one. We'll see you next time.